The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and for this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing someone who's been a longtime hero of mine, Norman Brent. Norman's played in the bands Texas is the Reason, New End Original, Shelter, and more over the years. He's currently a touring guitarist for Thursday. But the main reason that Norman came on the show is because he just relaunched his legendary 90s fanzine Antimatter as a substack. It's at antimatter.substack.com, and Norman's just been killing it off the bat. I've read everything he's put out so far, and he's really a necessary voice for what's going on within hardcore right now. He's got a unique ability to bridge the gaps between generations. And as he talks about on this show, this current moment for hardcore is actually kind of similar to the way things were going in 1993 when Norman first launched Antimatter. He puts it way more articulately than I do, so I won't ruin anything. You should just listen to him say it. And I think if you like hardcore at all, then and or now, you'll find tons of interesting things that Norman had to say throughout this conversation. Before we get to the show, listeners of this podcast can get 30% off their first year's membership at DistroKid by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. DistroKid is an awesome service for musicians that allows you to easily upload your music to all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and more. It allows you to do automatic revenue splits so collaborators and co-writers can get paid too. It provides you with an artist page that links to your music on all streaming services and allows you to add lyrics, credits, liner notes, and more. Again, you can get 30% off your first year subscription by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. We've also included the link in the description of this episode and you can click directly from there. And now, my conversation with Norman Brandon. All right. So, uh, hey, Norman, welcome to the Brooklyn Vegan Podcast. Uh, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Pretty good. Hot. I uh, I can't really record with my AC on because I'm sitting right next to it. So uh, same. I always gonna... <laughs> have to. Uh, I always have to sweat really bad <laughs> when I do these yep. things. <laughs> yeah. Same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, where are you right now? Actually, are you? Uh... I'm. I'm at home in Brooklyn. Um, I haven't honestly left the house a lot since, uh, antimatter relaunched, <laughs> um, mostly because it's actually, um, already a lot of work and, um, you know, it's, I have, I'm a little bit of a, uh, obsessive. I, you know, when I, when I start something and I'm serious about starting it, I really want it to be the best thing. And so I probably obsess about it more than I need to. Um, and that sort of precludes some social engagements and other things that I've just said no. And even if it was just that I just need to sleep tonight. <laughs> well, as a fellow writer of things on the internet, I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's more work than it looks. <laughs> it um, is. Um, I mean, cause there's like, you know, I don't know how like um, every writer is different, but I I've been really surprised by how the essay part of the site has kind of taken on like this really interesting life in a way that I wasn't sure would happen. Like when I conceived 
how the site was going to operate. And I don't, it's funny, it's on Substack, but I don't call it a newsletter because I'm not really reporting news. It's, it feels weird to call it that. But, um, but when I first conceived sort of what it would look like, there was, you know, this essay portion. And I thought like every week would sort of maybe carry some sort of loose theme. And so you had this essay portion and then two days later you'd have this interview. And, uh, and so I think I've been pretty successful at, at loosely merging the essays with the interviews, but I feel like the essays, number one, they take a lot out of me because I really want them to be sound and interesting and, um, and relevant to, to a wide swath of people. Um, and I think that at, at some point I thought that, um, you know, the interviews would be really like what everybody came for and they merely tolerate my essays. But I actually feel like the essays get like so much traffic and so much, you know, sharing and so much discussion. And that's been really surprising and also uh, encouraging because it means to me, one, that the concept of antimatter as a as a place to sort of discuss things and sort of like real life things and human things is something that people wanted. Um, and two, that people are still trying to think a little bit deeper about hardcore and hardcore related topics. So um, that's for me, like the most pleasant surprise so far. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, I want to say I, I really enjoy the way that you kind of like work in themes or thoughts from the interviews into the essays. Like I, um, I'm struggling to think of an exact example, but I've noticed from reading that it's like, oh, like this came up in my interview with Mike Judge. And like, here's like a bunch of paragraphs of me kind of expanding on this thought. And I'm, I really love sort of like how it all comes together as one big thing. Um, and it's not like these separate things. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, like, especially just, you know, as much as I really, really love interview podcasts like this one, <laughs> um, I feel like when you get to do one that's more like, let's just talk about some stuff we've been thinking about. It's like, I think people, I personally love hearing that, reading that. So like, I think it makes sense that that's catching on because I'm a, I'm a big fan of, first of all, I love your essays. And secondly, like I love reading just kind of like people's thoughts on things. Um, it can get deeper in a way that can feel personal and relatable. Like, whereas like interviews as like necessary as they are, are just a different thing. Sure. And I think like, I think the other thing that you maybe touched on a little bit, but that's relevant to sort of my, my mindset for years, years, people have been like, antimatter should be a podcast. You should do a podcast. And it was always podcast, podcast, podcast. And my response was like, at first, you know, I entertained the idea. I thought, oh, well, you know, I like doing interviews and that could be fun. Um, but when I thought about it a little bit deeper, and when I listen to other people's podcasts, especially podcasts that I actually like, um, I still felt like, wow, this doesn't feel like right for what I do. Because, well, one thing is that I like for the person that I'm talking to to feel like they have freedom. And I think like sometimes in the podcast medium, it's easy to get self-conscious about saying things when you know people are hearing you say them in your own voice. 
and it's it's very easy to sort of say things you don't mean or say things that are maybe like difficult to understand because you're sort of formulating it on the spot. There's a lot of reasons why podcasts I feel like don't always bring out like the the most profound <laughs> sort of uh responses. And and I you know there's obviously a variety of quality of podcasts, but as there are a variety of quality of interviewers, but um you know one of the things that I sort of like about what I do is that you know, I have a thing that I've, I tell people that I interview and I've, I've sort of started every interview I've ever done for 30 years the same way. And I, I start by saying, number one, I just want you to talk to me like you're me, like, you, you know, like you're talking to me, period. Number two, take your time. Don't think you're talking too much. And if you need a second to think, take that second, you know, and, you know, and number three, feel free to say whatever you want. Total fucking anarchy. And if at any point you're like, I shouldn't have said that, just tell me and it's out, it's out. So I think people, and, and obviously over 30 years of doing this, I have a reputation now where people are like, you can trust him. Mm. <laughs> he's not, he's not gotcha journalism. It's, it's really just like, he just wants to have the most honest possible conversation. And, and I think that that those three things create an environment of freedom that allows people to maybe say things that I don't think they would say on a podcast. And I will say like, I just did an interview with Ned Russin from Glitterer and Title Fight. And uh, the last question I asked him was like a total weird one. It was a sort of, uh, I don't even want to, it, it, it was very almost like existentialist. It was a little, it was a weird question, but I do think that it had this real value to it. And he sat there in complete silence for at least a minute. And, and then he felt, I could tell he felt like he needed to answer something. And I said, wait, if you don't know what you're going to say next, I can wait. And I think we literally sat there for three minutes in total silence <laughs> until he came up with something and it was an amazing answer. So, so I just don't feel like you can do that on the podcast. And the other aspect of podcasts too, as someone who's been on them, is that I like to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. and, and that sometimes requires a little bit of a different strategy than being honest or sincere or revealing. And, and so... Um, you know, I don't think that anybody who sits down for an antimatter interview is trying to entertain anybody, except me, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is different when, like, you can just kind of feel like we're being recorded and they're going to hear exactly this um, versus, like, an interview that will be typed out later and you kind of know, like, it's okay to say, um, you know, and right. take your time. Yeah. Like, it's also amazing how, how much smarter you sound when you take out all the likes and ums and you know mm -hmm. what I means. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, I have certain vocal tics that I, you know, when, I mean, I'm always editing myself just to make myself sound smarter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's also a, a, a benefit. <laughs> Yeah, like I'm sure you go through this too as someone who conducts interviews and then transcribes them. But what I've really learned from doing that is people very rarely speak grammatically correct, you know? Oh, like, for sure. <laughs> it's like the, like I've done so many interviews where I'm just like, wow, this is like you cut yourself off halfway through the thought 
And in the, in the moment, I, I felt like I knew what you were saying. But now listening back, I'm like, I don't know how to transcribe this in a way that anyone else will get it. Like, you know, there is there is a weird thing about how even something that you listen to that's comprehensible to you. But then you read it and it makes no sense. And so <laughs> like that's happened to me a few times. And in, in those cases, I'll be honest, I take liberties. I will switch the sentence, you know, around to make it make sense <laughs> because nobody, including the speaker is benefiting from a, a sentence that doesn't make sense. Totally. I agree and definitely do the same. Um, <laughs> and something you said that resonated with me was um, like the concept of like, you know, I'm not gotcha journalism. Like I've definitely, it happens less now, but I've definitely had interviews years ago where people would kind of be like, so like, how are you going to make us sound in the article? You know, like, And I'm like, don't worry. Like, I like your band. That's like why we're right. talking. And um, I feel like I that mentality for me, like comes, I think, from fanzine culture, um, because it's not like that sort of TMZ or even like some other kind of journalism where it's like, oh, like we we talk to this artist and like, here's all their the horrible, like, I don't know, it's more like, no, I'm talking to you because I like your band, you know, like, right. and, um, but that being said, I want to say to you that, uh, one, like, I am honored that you're on this podcast. Um, Thank you. and I'm like, a is, I feel like, I don't know, I've probably been a Texas is the reason and new and original fan for at least half my life. But I have to confess that I'm kind of a more, I'm more recently learning about antimatter, I, I guess, like, because of my age, like, it wasn't something I knew about in real time, I was like, probably learning to walk um and um and i know the book is out but like it was it's your relaunch has really put it on my radar and i've been reading all the new stuff and it's awesome um but if people listening are like me and don't fully know the history i'm wondering if you can kind of give like a brief kind of synopsis on like what this was in the 90s and why you decided to bring it back in 2023 yeah um well, it, so antimatter was basically conceived and launched originally in 1993. At the time, I played guitar in Shelter, and you know, Shelter in 1993 was probably one of the bigger hardcore bands that was happening. I never considered it to be my band, right? It's Ray and Purcell's band, and that's cool. <laughs> um, I was happy at that point to go along for the ride. I was 19 years old, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm in a band with Ray and Purcell. This is sick." Um, and so, but it also gave me a real sort of bird's eye view of the hardcore scene, not just locally, but internet, like nationally and globally. Um, Shelter was the b first band that I was in to give me access to the world of hardcore. And when you think about the world of hardcore before the internet, it was really interesting because there were so many regionalities and local sounds and local styles and everybody moshed different. And there was, you know, there was no, there was no unifying factor where, you know, everyone watched the same hate five, six video and then decided this is how you stage dive, right? Like everybody had their own vibe and I loved that. So on some level, that was a, that was one of the big things that sort of getting me, got me excited about it, about the idea of unifying scenes but I think also in the 90s and in 93 specifically was a real sort of fulcrum for the hardcore scene because I feel like we were just far away from the 80s now where people were really just doing whatever the fuck they wanted to do musically. And that also was very exciting to me. 
Um, because honestly, I loved 80s hardcore. I was in, you know, it was involved. I, you know, I was there. I've seen all the late 80s bands that everyone loved and I loved them too. But, you know, I don't want to see that forever. So when bands started evolving and changing and you had your shelters and your quicksands and your inside outs and your even burn, you know, they were like a really progressive hardcore band. Um, that was a really exciting time for me because it, it felt like our generation now was making up the rules. And the thing is the older generation was starting to push back. And, um, and so that splintered the scene in a way that I also felt was, artificial and counterintuitive to a healthy hardcore scene. As far as I was concerned, hardcore was not a style of music. It was a community. It was the way we lived our lives, like ways of being. It was our ethics. It was, you know, there were so many other aspects to hardcore to me. The music was part of it. Yes, thrash is great. Mosh is great. Love it. But we didn't have to be married to it. We could do whatever the fuck we want. That was the point to me. And the fact that we were getting pushback from the old guard, from the maximum rock and roll world, and and places where they started to literally censor our expressions, right? Maximum rock and roll just literally was like, I'm we're not letting you advertise here anymore. We're not writing about your bands anymore. All of these labels and bands were just left on an island somewhere. And so that was really the final straw for me that brought antimatter out. It was a way of one, hopefully bringing together all these regionalities that I was discovering, two, trying to bring together all of these seemingly disparate musical styles that were coming out of hardcore at the time. And then three was something I realized very early on was trying to bring back these generations that had begun sort of looking at each other side-eyed. Um, because that wasn't my experience. I was friends with a lot of people who were in the hardcore scene in 1981 and 1982, and they were cool people. <laughs> and I wanted them to like what was happening in 1992 and 1993. And so it was really important to me to bring together generations, regionalities, and styles of music. And that sort of is became what the antimatter umbrella was about. And then I would say, as far as 2023 goes, we're in a very similar place. I think, you know, uh, hardcore is just, first of all, it's bigger than it's ever been, which is amazing. Second of all, it's just starting to really show now, again, this diversity of styles. We're even seeing a lot of the bands of the last few years that blew up in hardcore are already sort of moving into their post-hardcore eras. <laughs> and we're going to be start, we're going to be dealing with a lot of these same issues again. The hardcore purists are going to be like, "What the fuck? You sound like the Breeders now." <laughs> and we're going to have to start talking about these things again. We're we're talking about multiple generations of shows that are going now over 40 years of fucking hardcore, right? Like, you know, No Echo posted a thing on Threads the other day like, you know, how many years have you been listening to hardcore music? And I, you know, responded 37 years with three melty faces. <laughs> and that's wild to me, 37 years of being involved in this culture and this scene. So it's like, um, you know, I think that a lot of these issues that we were dealing with in 1993 are going to come back up as hardcore grows. And I think antimatter should be here for it. That's really what it was about. 
Yeah, no, I'm really glad you say that because I think about this exact thing way too much. Um, <laughs> like it, it definitely feels like, you know, right now, um, I think one of the reasons that hardcore is bigger than ever is because of bands that maybe sound like the breeders. Like I think there are bands coming out of hardcore and doing these things that are like a little more palatable for people who maybe don't want to listen to like Madball, and like it's opening the doors. Like, you know I mean? Like obviously like the elephant in the room is turnstile, obviously like they're, sure. they open the most doors. Um, but like, what I think what a lot of these bands are doing, like, like, let's say like Turnstile or Military Gun or Scowl or Angel Dust, they're doing like really creative things that are pushing the boundaries of what some people define hardcore to be. And you're definitely seeing pushback, I think, like there are people who are like, oh, that's hardcore adjacent. And I'm like, do you right. really need another word for it? You know, <laughs> like, is that really necessary? I really want to challenge people, you know, who are so reductive to believe that hardcore is only one style of music. And I, I said this in an essay, but I think this bears repeating. You know, when we talk about what does hardcore sound like, um, I mean, you're opening up a fucking can of worms. Because if you're like, well, hardcore has a fucking screamer, then I'm going to say, is seven seconds not hardcore? You know, like it, it, hardcore has to be fucking a million miles an hour. And then it's like, okay, well, were the stimulators not hardcore? Was fucking Kraut not hardcore? It was like, you know, there's there's a lot of bands who don't always do that. Well, hardcore has to have mosh parts. Well, I mean, there did DRI have a mosh part? They were only fucking full on thrash, like nonstop. So it's like, they're always going to be these legendary bands who didn't play by any of these fucking rules. So why are we going to apply these rules to ourselves now? And I get, that there are bands that push the the boundaries, right? You know, I always bring up Chamberlain, right? They just went out and said, fuck it. We're from Indiana. And if we want to sound like fucking Bruce Springsteen or whatever, <laughs> that's, that's just who we are. But the thing is, they weren't rejected in the hardcore scene because everyone was like, they're doing their thing. And that thing is real. It's real to them. We feel it. It's not feigned. They're not trying to like, you know, it's not cashing in because clearly like this could have been the most polarizing thing for them to do. So fuck it. Let's support that. And, and I, and I think that that's beautiful because they, this is where they came from. I met those guys, you know, in 1992, uh, you know, where they they opened for shelter and they were more of a hardcore band back then, <laughs> but it was real. And you know, those guys are real and that that's what matters. So I feel like, you know, I get that, you know, even Texas is the reason people would say like, fuck, that's not hardcore. And I would say, if you're asking me whether or not this sounds like agnostic front, it does not, but I've played shows with Snapcase, I've played shows with Madball, I've played shows with Civ. And none of those audiences looked at us like we had fucking, you know, tails coming out of our heads. Like it, they saw us, they heard us, they recognized us and saw us as hardcore. And that's why we were able to play those shows. Yeah. And it's really interesting too. Like I was reading um, the thing you wrote for the talk house. It was like a, an, a personal history of emo. Oh yeah. Um, and you, you know, yeah. Like you kind of talked about like, Texas is the reason didn't really set out 
to like be an emo band, but then you get on Wikipedia, like one of the cornerstones of nineties emo. And that just like changes the way people see the band forever. Um, but I've, I've always felt like Texas, the reason is a specifically interesting case. When you look at quote nineties emo, because it's like, you're from New York, you're on revelation records. Like you played in shelter and one Oh eight. Like it's not like a Midwest mathy band on polyvinyl or Jade tree. Um, and yet, I wait, you were no, yeah, right. Um, but it's like, but, but, but I get like, I see what I, you're saying. Yeah. yeah I grew, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up thinking Texas, the reason was emo. And that makes so much sense to me. But I think if I would have grown up thinking it was hardcore, that would have also made sense. I mean, I would be very hard pressed to find a piece of writing that existed when we were a band that called us emo. We that was so after the fact. And so, you know, at that time, the most common thing that we were called was post-hardcore. And I liked that term because to me, it was more of like a very descriptive term as opposed to a prescriptive term, right? Like post-hardcore is a very vague kind of thing. As far as I'm concerned, post-hardcore just meant we used to play in hardcore bands and now our music sounds a little different. Right. And so that was, that made sense to me. And I wasn't, I was fine with that. These days, post hardcore is ex- especially meaningless because I think it's applied to bands that didn't come from the hardcore scene. <laughs> and I just don't think you can be post hardcore if you were never hardcore. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, but that's a whole other conversation. I think even if though, let's just play devil's advocate, even if Texas is the reason was an emo band. Emo still comes from emo core, right? And emo core, yes, it was an insult when it was uh, coined, right? But regardless, it still acknowledged the core. (laughs) It was still an offshoot of hardcore. It was still something that people saw and identified with the hardcore scene. So that's still something that I think about now when I'm thinking about like what is you know, antimatter in 2023, is there a band like anxious, right? Like to me, anxious, if they came out in 1987, people would have been like, what is this? (laughs) But they'd fit right in, in 1995 and they fit in, in 2023 and their singers, like a total straight edge kid. Like, I mean, you know, he, he literally wears like straight edge t-shirts and like, I'm not going to say that's not hardcore. To me, that's still hardcore. I'm I'm co-signing them right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, when you were talking about Texas, like the band that popped right into my head was Anxious. I feel like there's a total history repeats itself parallel there. Like they come out of the hardcore scene, like you said, like I feel like every time I see them, they're wearing like bold and chain of strength shirts and stuff. But like they also write pop songs. Um, so here's, what's wild too about, I mean, it's funny that we bring up anxious, but it's like, uh, so the last song on their album has, uh, vocals by Stella Brandstool from Hello Mary. And I'm, I just happened to be friends with Stella's parents. I've known her since she was like three. (laughs) And so it's really wild to me that, you know, these, these guys are like, they're all 21 and 22 years old. You know, I like, I just turned 49, but I'm still like, 
I'm fucking, I'm an anxious Stan. I love this band, (laughs) but it's, it's not lost on me, the generational divide. And so it's, it's again, so important to me though, that we maintain this sort of generational dialogue open in this community. I think that it's so easy for old school heads to fucking hang out with old school heads (laughs) and for the young kids to hang out with the young kids. And I just want to be the person to say, no, that's bullshit. The entire scene will suffer. No one is saying the young kids have to listen to the old heads in a, in a sort of instructive type of way, but to know your history, to know where things come from, to hear firsthand stories like that only enriches your experience. And I think it also, it's also really important to sort of amplify the fact again, that this is a community hardcore more than anything to me is the people who make it up. And we all become better community members when we speak to each other and understand each other and learn from each other. And that means the old heads have a lot to learn from the young guys. And that's also something that I want to do. I want to, I want to be there. I want to open that dialogue. Yeah. And I love that you're doing that. Like, I love that just so far on Anti-Matter, you have an interview with Mike Judge and you have a playlist with like One Step Closer and Buggin and stuff. Right. Um, I mean, it's weird. The first four interviews, and this was a complete accident, but the first four interviews actually sort of wound up being very generational. So there's like Mike Judge was the first and he's very 80s, 90s to me. Uh, There's one with Jeff Rickley, who's very 2000s. Brandon from Incendiary, very 2010s. And then Crystal from Initiate, who's very 2020s. So it just sort of happened that way. I wasn't even trying. I just picked people that I liked and that I thought was in, that I thought were interesting or had interesting stories to tell that maybe weren't getting that opportunity. Like Crystal from Initiate. That um that interview to me is like one of the best interviews I think I've ever done. Um and I sort of love the fact that you know, she's 30 years old. She doesn't I don't you know, she obviously Antimatter is 30 years old. So obviously she wasn't reading Antimatter as a baby. <laughs> right? I don't I don't know even know how much she knew what Antimatter was, but we had such an interesting conversation and I also realized that I I come from a little bit of a privileged position because having been in bands and sort of like being identifiable in that way, people that are in bands do tend to give me the benefit of the doubt so that I can say things to them that maybe if you said them, they'd be like, yeah, what the fuck, Andrew? Fuck you. <laughs> but I would, I could be like, okay, hang on. I'm going to call you out right now. <laughs> and they'll take it. And, and I love that. Or if they push back, I love that too. But, but having that sort of little bit of whatever little privilege that I get from being in Texas is the reason or Thursday or whatever, um, you know, that's a, that's, that's part of what I think makes the interviews also a little bit different than the average interviews. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I see it when I see musicians interview each other, like the vibe is different. And there's like, I think a level of comfort that's there that like, with all, you know, I'll just never have that, which is fine. 
because that's my life. But like, right. you know, like, yeah. Well, just... but, okay. But again, to be fair, like when I started Antimatter, yes, I was in shelter, but the, I interviewed bands who, where that didn't matter. Right. Like, so the first time I interviewed Jay Robbins was the first time I met Jay Robbins and Jay Robbins, I can assure you was not a shelter fan. So I did not start with any sort of leg up in that conversation. And I remember thinking about that because, you know, there were a lot of interviews where I knew like either like I have a leg up because they recognized me from shelter or I know this person. So I have a leg up. Jay was neither. So I had to go into that interview thinking, what can I say that would sort of make him weary of me? Like, what, you know, like, what can I, what, how can I start this conversation in a way where, um, he knows that he's in for it basically. And so I just decided, and it was a very innocuous question. I just asked him, what can you tell me about your first crush? That's just not something that a lot of people ask as, you know, as a first question. Um, but I remember the look on his face of just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I, you know, I very much just tried to, to stay very, you know, grave. Um, and so he took it seriously and started answering this question. And, and then we had this conversation. And I remember at the end of the interview, uh, Kim Coletta came walking by and she's like, Jay, we're going to need you in a second. Are you almost done? And he's like, yeah, I think so. And she's like, okay, cool. It's just an interview. And he was like, it is not just a fucking interview. <laughs> but that, but then Jay remembered me, you know? So it was just like, that's how Texas is the reason started working with Jay. It was like, do you remember that guy? <laughs> that's amazing. Well, good tip to have for future interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is honestly, I think like it, it sets a tone. And as somebody who's done his fair share of interviews on this side, um, I know what works for me. So, um, when somebody sets the tone with a weird, but not stupid question, um, I like weird. I'm into that. <laughs> yeah. Weird is good. Yeah. Um, so something that you said, I think it was in the interview with Mike judge that, uh, stuck out to me. Like you kind of talked about, the idea of a hardcore future didn't really seem possible in like 1993 because of this like live fast, die young element. Um, it actually reminded me of something that I know Walter Schreifels had said probably more than once, um, which he was like, when we started Gorilla Biscuits, we already thought we were too late. Like we thought hardcore was right. over. And it seems like that mentality kind of like continued to happen. I mean, cause you're saying this now in 93 and it's kind of similar. Um, like, at what point did you realize that hardcore was going to be kind of this everlasting community? I don't know that I did until recently, um, which seems really crazy to say 37 years in. But um, here's the thing. It's, it's cliche to say that the older you get, the more perspective you have. But there you go. Um, there is something to to this. When I was looking at the idea of a hardcore future as a teenager or as a 20 something or even as a 30 something, to be honest, um, one of the reasons why we didn't have that was because quite simply, when I was 20, there weren't any 40 year olds hanging out in the scene. And so and if there were, you would have looked at them weird, like, what the fuck? You're, you, what, what are you doing here? Boomer, you know, 
<laughs> but so, um, but over time, as those 20 year olds became the 40 year olds, and there were new 20-year-olds to look at the 40-year-olds. Um, then all of a sudden, there was this idea of like, okay, wait, so these guys are still hanging out. Hardcore is still a part of their lives in some way. How can I make hardcore um, not a permanent thing, but a long-lasting concern in my life, right? Um, there was this idea that when I was growing up, that either you were going to sell out hardcore and become an accountant or you had to just be like, you know, Johnny Stiff, like, or, you know, whoever was older than you <laughs> driving your, you know, uh, driving a van to drive bands around and, and fucking, you know, hanging out in Tompkins Square Park and taking odd jobs, you know? <laughs> and so now there's this whole range of like hardcore futures that you can look at. I have friends that are hardcore that are in hardcore bands that you know of that are CEOs. <laughs> and that's crazy to me. But they haven't, you know, they haven't really changed. They're the same people. Um, they just sort of have are operating those hardcore ways of being in other ways that also allow them to support their families or sort of like, you know, um support themselves really. And I think like the other thing is that. There has to be a changing paradigm about the way we take care of ourselves. I think that hardcore people have this, or at least historically, have had this um, almost disdain for making money, right? <laughs> and I get it. Money, root of all evil, we all know we get it. But the reality is someday you're going to be 49 years old. <laughs> and you may not own a house. You may not own a car. I'm I'm talking autobiographically. <laughs> all I have, all I have is my creative assets, right? I've been able to do, I've been lucky enough that for, you know, for my entire adult life, I've been able to make a decent enough living where I've never gone without. But I realize that not everybody gets that privilege. And we need to stop making people feel bad for thinking about themselves in that way. There are ways to make money ethically, and we shouldn't shame people into thinking that there are no ethical ways of making money, even in the hardcore scene. And I think that that's like a conversation that we haven't had yet. You know, we're still stuck in this idea that shows should be $5. And it's like, where did that number even come from to begin with, right? Like I was talking to somebody the other day about it and I was saying like Fugazi, you know, when they played the Roseland in New York, yeah, it was $5, great. I promise you the Roseland lost a shit ton of money to put that show on. $5 a head does not even pay for the insurance in that room. They did it to do it because they wanted to do a Fugazi show, great. but. Is it ethical that they had to lose their shirts? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we should be asking that question. Why does anyone have to lose their shirts? Can we find a way that's fair for the bands, fair for the promoters, fair for the fans? How can we do that? And the only way we can get to that place is to have an open discussion about it, a transparent discussion about it. And the reality of also of 
taking care of our own. Because the fact is that people in bands, and I'm going to go, I'm going on a little rant right now, but I'm just, I'm going with it. Uh, <laughs> go with it. <laughs> but people in bands don't have a retirement plan. And then we get criticized if our band does a reunion or we get criticized, <laughs> you know, if our, if our show is too much money or whatever it is. And it's like, you know what? I'm sorry. I gave my life to you <laughs> and I didn't give it to whatever corporation would have paid me better and given me a 401k and insurance. So cut me some fucking slack. <laughs> and the more we have people in the scene, again, this is where the intergenerational dialogue is necessary. The more we have people in the scene who are willing to talk about that as they get older, right? That's important for the younger generation to hear because younger generation should be thinking about right now because you're giving your years away and I'm the ghost of Christmas future, right? I'm the best case scenario of the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> I'm doing okay, but I have a lot of friends who are not. And I think that that's sort of, you know, something that I feel like needs to be discussed. And I do feel like that relates at least somewhat to uh, what you talked about in, I think it was the second introductory essay for Antimatter's return with like the major label and sellout stuff and how this was sort of like a, a line drawn in the sand with like maximum rock and roll. Um, and obviously like Dan Ozzy's book is like a whole book about this right thing. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean, you like if you like, we all know like the jawbreaker story, but then compare that to like turnstile and I don't get the sense that anybody is giving Turnstile a hard time for signing to a major, touring with Blink-182, playing to 6,000 people and making money. Like it it seems right. like- Right, it doesn't <laughs> seem that way, but it does seem like, you know, Turnstile are one of those bands where it's just like, their, their sort of hardcore credentials were so bulletproof that I feel like you gotta have a lot of nerve. <laughs> <laughs> because you know they're out there they're being creative they're doing some really really interesting and cool shit you know even the fact that you know brendan like directed that you know 20 minute video right like it was like that thing was a piece of art like you you know hardcore or not it's art and i think people also respect it because the quality of it is just so fucking good turnstile is a great band it's you can say it's not my cup of tea but you can't say they're not a great band so I think that they're sort of, they're always going to be sort of an outlier um, in this question. There will be other bands that are maybe more divisive that people will use as scapegoats for this question as the years go on. I don't know ultimately whether or not there's a such thing as selling out, at least in terms of signing to a major anymore. And the reason why I say that is because I think that the younger generation is more aware of the fact that their entry into punk was a major label entry, right? You probably got into punk because you liked Green Day or Fall Out Boy or My Chem or you know, whoever it was. And that's awesome. <laughs> we all need entry points. Like we all weren't hanging out on Avenue A in 1981 and that's fine. <laughs> I, my entry point was the Ramones, you know, like that was the first thing where I started to think like, well, what else is out there? What, what's like the Ramones? And somehow I got to Kraut and somehow that took me to Agnostic Front. And so, you know, those, 
those issues of selling out, I mean, even when you think of Kraut, they were on MTV. Like, was that selling out? No one thought so in the 80s. We were just like, fuck, that's amazing. Right? <laughs> you know, when when we got to know Chromags was on Headbangers Ball, I didn't care that it was on Headbangers Ball. I was just psyched to see a Chromags video on TV. That's awesome. So everybody has different uh, entry points. And I feel like to belittle each other's entry points, like you fucking grew up in the gutter and just randomly found a fucking wide awake seven inch in your backpack. Like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, but I do think that the younger generation is more in tune with that reality. I'm guessing. That's how it seems to me. Like it, I guess, yeah, Turnstile is sort of a bad example because they've kind of like done everything right to appease people on all possible sides while being <laughs> like a great band. Um, but well, I, well, before you go, I'll just yeah. say Turnstile are doing it the way I talked about it. They're being real. Yeah. And when people see real, they respect it. So go ahead. Yes, totally. <laughs> and absolutely. And I, I've talked about this on, um, I think I talked about this maybe with Sammy from Drain, but it's like what I hope when people are influenced by Turnstile, I hope they don't just think, let's make a record that sounds like Glow On and we'll get popular. I hope they think, Turnstile did what they wanted to do. Let's do what we want to do. That's right. like, yeah. They'd be a very difficult band to to try to rip off, to be honest. People like, do it. I'm <laughs> Well, try. have you seen that? Have you seen that thing that was on Catatonic Youths the other day? <laughs> no. What was it? <laughs> I think it was a European band that basically was trying to be Turnstile. Is it a, is it Slope? I don't know who it was. Okay. I, just, I saw the video and it was <laughs> but this is the point. I think I give people a lot of credit for intuition, right? I, I I've told this story um, to someone during an interview recently. So I used to live with Keith Burkhart, who sang for Cause for Alarm. So Cause for Alarm, fucking unimpeachably New York hardcore. Dude is so old school, he dropped out of the scene in 1983. <laughs> okay i was nine years old when he was getting out <laughs> so anyway keith's an amazing person um so we lived together in the 90s at some point mid 90s 93 94 95 something like that and um oh it must have been 95 so i was listening to sensefield in my room and he sort of like walked out and sort of was like standing in the doorway and he was like listening to it and at this point cause for alarm it got back together they put out a record on victory um so he was like around the scene but he didn't really listen to like the new bands right like he didn't know what was happening so he'd never heard sensefield before the other aspect of this story is that i listened to a lot of music so this could have been literally anyone and he just stood at the doorway and he was like i like this and I was like, cool. And he was like, they're from the hardcore scene, right? And I was like, yeah, you, you can tell. I was like, yeah, I think you can. <laughs> <laughs> and I never forgot that story because this is the point that I've been trying to make the whole time. This is what I'm saying. Hardcore kids know it when you see it. You know it when you hear it. Even if it doesn't sound like cause for alarm, which Sensefield and Cause for Alarm are about as far away from each other as you can sound stylistically, he was still able to hear it and recognize it as something that came from the tree of hardcore. 
<laughs> and that's fucking beautiful because to me that's saying that hardcore has this almost like intangible quality that is just you just intuit it and i think that that's you know that's something that comes with experience it's something that comes with you know being around the scene long enough but again it's like that's it's the reason why i hear glow on and i'm like yes that's real and I hear this video on catatonic youth and I'm like, whoa, that is so not real. And, and it's not just not real because it's derivative. I like bands that are derivative of each other, right? There's, I mean, I'm not going to say who, but there's a few bands right now that are very derivative <laughs> of bands that I really enjoyed 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still love them because they're real. So you can be derivative and real. This was very derivative and unreal. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that that is a very not fine line and very noticeable yeah <laughs> um, um yeah i mean it def i will say it does like the thought that it puts in my head though is like i can't think of an exact band but i'm sure there are bands who like okay so like turnstile will probably influence bands that don't know anything about hardcore and they might influence like really good bands that don't know anything about hardcore um like i feel like just to use a more realistic example like let's use thursday right like thursday i feel like you can hear it like you're i mean you play in thursday now but like when you listen to older records you're like all right they came up in that world for sure how many bands did they influence that just didn't come up in that world but it's like if you're learning it filtering it through thursday and following it back like i do think something great can happen and i guess sometimes i just think about like at what point like, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome in the hardcore scene, I think, you yes. know, like, it's like, at, at what point can you just be like, you know what, maybe that band doesn't really come from hardcore, but they're influenced by bands who came from hardcore, and they're doing something a little bit similar, and it's really good. And maybe you can just like them and not have to worry about, you know what I'm saying? I well, okay, so that's a completely separate sort of thing. Like, I, I believe you should like whoever the fuck you like, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's a lot of bands that are not hardcore that I love and that's fine. Um, it's just that, you know, it's that tendency to want to, you know, categorize that can drive one crazy. You don't need to justify that you like a pop punk band who has nothing to do with hardcore. If they're a good band like them, that's great. Um, for the purposes of antimatter, I'm really trying to keep like, I've been using this. I, coined this term on uh the antimatter spotify for am radio which is the new music thing that i'm doing um and i termed it i called it community made music and i really sort of like feel like that's hardcore and community made music it's basically talking about that tree of hardcore right so there are bands that sound a lot like taking back sunday right now right but taking back sunday we're hardcore kids and you can hear it, you can tell, right? Um, you know, I I remember Ed from going to sh- he's not in the band anymore, but I remember Ed from going to shows in the '80s. Like we were at shows together, we you know we had a relationship. I remember him at all the shows. I know that he's a hardcore kid, so it's like those types of things again sort of lead you back to this place of like what's real. Well, I think what's real is, were you in the community? So if you were just like, you know, 
a lot of uh, pop punk bands, I'm not saying that they don't even know anything about, maybe they know t- tons about hardcore and have listened to tons of hardcore, but were they in the community? Did they, were they active in the community in some way? Again, intangible wit things, but you sort of feel like you know it when you hear it. And I really do feel like I have a pretty decent knack for that at this point. Um, I will say this. I did this. So um, this was edited out of an interview with Brendan from Incendiary um, because our interview was like something crazy, like 12,000 words. And I had to cut over half of it. <laughs> but um, but there was, there's a part in the interview where we're talking about the now core comp. Are you familiar? No. Okay. So in 1997 or eight, I want to say, uh, KTEL records. And so I, for, for people of a certain age, KTEL records brings up all the warm and fuzzies. KTEL records was like, you know, the label that made all these really weird compilation albums and would sell them on television in the seventies and eighties. So you know, you'd see these commercials and you'd be like, oh my God, it's golden hits of disco, you know, like, and it was all, it was just very nostalgic. And then KTEL sort of like went away. So in 1997, I get this phone call saying that KTEL is putting together a compilation of basically like emo and post-hardcore bands. And would Texas license a track for it? And so way mixed feelings, right? Like I was like, oh, I mean, I love KTEL. <laughs> like for the nostalgia of it, I was like, I love KTEL. But also like, is this weird? <laughs> like, does this mean it's over? Are we, is the whole thing done? KTEL's doing a, you know, an autopsy compilation basically. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but then I heard some of the other bands that were on it, you know, it was like Promise Ring, Modest Mouse. Death Cab. And I was sort of like, okay, so they're sort of like, it's, you know, at the drive-in, Braid. It was like a lot of bands from our world that hadn't yet blown up too far out of our world. So it felt like, okay, this, this, you know, if everyone's co-signing on it, it must be cool. Let's just fucking do it, right? And we didn't make a lot of money. It was just whatever. It was like, let's make a KTEL record. Anyway, that comp, Brendan's own words was literally changed my life. His sister gave him a copy of the now core comp and he listened to all those bands. And at that point he was into like Pennywise and like pop punk and stuff like that. And he had listened to some hardcore, but the now core comp just lit his brain on fire. He was really just like, this is fucking cool. I I really love this fucking world. Right. And I think like, one of the things in the interview that I talked about with him that I, that I first thing I said to him was that, you know, you're a kid who, you know, you bought your first hardcore shirt at a hot topic and you went to your first hardcore show at a mall, like, and the now core compilation changed your life, right? Like, <laughs> so it's like, you're the kid that we were wondering about in the nineties. You're the kid that everybody was like, What's this next generation of hardcore going to be who fucking listen to major label records and fucking shop at Hot Topic? You're the kid. The singer from Incendiary is the kid. And he's awesome. (laughs) He's smart. And he's one of the best bands that's out right now. And so 
it's, it was a real lesson in gatekeeping for me. It really like listening to his story and, and sort of like hearing all those things. It really made me remember that like, you know, the kid who's, who you're fucking counting out right now, the kid who you think is the geek at the show, you know, whatever it is, that kid could be the person who's doing the next great thing for this fucking community. And we have to treat everyone with that same amount of respect. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I definitely, I don't know. I feel like gatekeeping can get a bit out of control. Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, at least it's not as bad as it used to be. I mean, it used to be that like you'd show up at CB's and if they didn't recognize you, you'd get chased into the middle of the Bowery, get beat down and have your dock stolen. (laughs) We don't have to do that anymore, thankfully, but it can still be fairly insidious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully it's, it's like, you know, less violent is usually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But social media definitely amplifies. Like I'm sure you remember like when the video of Jay from Mindforce went around Twitter. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was this the, you can't stay at home watching videos video? Yeah. (laughs) And and then, and then it became like an ax to grind episode and it was just like, I don't know. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I'm like, we're talking, (laughs) we're talking so much about like, a thing he popped it. It's like kind of what you said before. Like when you're, you're not necessarily thinking articulately, like he said right. a thing on stage and I don't think he was like, this is going to become a viral video. And then it did. And everybody <laughs> has to weigh in. And it's like, we're putting a lot of mental energy into this. That's all. I am. <laughs> I am sure that he means the right thing, <laughs> but, but, and I, if I'm being honest with you, when I saw the video, I didn't necessarily even interpret it in that way. You know, I think he was trying to make a case for trying to contribute. But I think like, obviously, if you sat down and talked to him, he would be like, yeah, of course, like in different parts of the world, we have different accessibility. And, you know, that was one of the first things that I learned going on tour. I I remember uh, being in this was was it before the wall came? No, it was after the wall came down, but it was like pretty soon after the wall came down. Shelter played in Germany and we played a bunch in East Germany. And I remember like, uh, we stayed with this kid and he was wearing like a handmade side by side shirt. And like, he had like, you know, bleach blonde hair and these sort of like fake Nikes, like, you know, like it was a very youth crew look, but very DIY (laughs) youth crew look. And, you know, I was, I remember like talking to him and he was a cool guy. He didn't really he didn't know that much because back then you really had to like the only way you learned was by reading fanzines, maybe becoming pen pals, trading tapes, you know, those types of things, but you know, it's limited and his access was very limited. I could not sit there and judge him the way, you know, I would have judged a kid sitting in front of CBs in 1988. Like, I had to be, it was the first time that I really thought about this in terms of, okay, like everybody has different points of access and points of, of connection to a hardcore scene. There are still places in America, believe it or not, that don't have hardcore scenes. (laughs) And that doesn't mean that that person has to move or he's not hardcore. Um, I think that, you know, we talk a lot about self-identification these days and, and when we talk about identity politics, right? And I get that hardcore has a history of like using the word poser a lot. 
Um, but I'm willing to hear you out. If you self-identify as a hardcore kid, come talk. I'm willing to hear you out <laughs> because it means you're, you're putting yourself on one side of the line and it means something to you. And, and you may not be, you know, the most knowledgeable. Um, and if you don't have access to the community, you may not understand yet all of the sort of social etiquettes <laughs> of, of the, the scene and, and whatnot. But uh, that doesn't mean you don't love it and that you don't deserve to be there. Yeah. I, and it's like, you know, like the more for me, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I mean, who even, who even really gets to decide like if you're in it enough, you know, like if you, if you're like going out and being like, I'm a hardcore kid, I want to be at hardcore shows. I want to listen to hardcore music. Like, what do you have to do to convince somebody else that you're doing it right? Like, why should you even have to, you know, like what's weird is that it really did used to feel like you did. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it still kind of does, I think, like to some extent. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's I mean, I remember being a kid and going to shows and feeling like, when am I going to be able to go to a show and not feel like today's the day I get my ass kicked? Like, you know, there was, yeah, the imposter syndrome thing was real. And it was very like, I didn't. Even when I felt like, okay, I've been going to shows for three or four years now, surely now <laughs> I'm real. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know when it happened. It, it probably didn't happen for me until like I was turned around and was like, shit, I've been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> but even like with Texas, right? Like that was a huge thing where it was like, you know, people, there were people who were like trying to gatekeep us out, you know, and um, luckily none of those people mattered because the people who welcomed us in, um, were, you know, some of the most senior people in the scene. <laughs> so I think we had, we had our way in. It was, it, it worked. And I think like, what's funny now is that there are kids who literally like Texas is their entry point and, you know, they listen to it and to them if it's here and we get back, it's ours is a fucking hardcore song with a mosh part. And guess what? It is. <laughs> yeah. And it I, very, it very purposely has a mosh part. <laughs> it was very much my way of saying, this is where we come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, like, I know you, you mentioned like Ned from title fight earlier. Like I feel like anybody would have to say title fight is hardcore kids. And I know that Texas, the reason is like one of Ned's formative bands. Like, yeah, um, I know that like the guys in anxious and one step closer, Texas, the reason are some of one of their formative bands and probably so is title fight for them at this point. Yeah. So, for sure. yeah, right. Like, <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, it's like, I mean, yeah, I like, I'm very fortunate to have never had to deal with like someone will beat me up for being in the wrong place but <laughs> i mean i w i went through imposter syndrome hard like because and it's, it's like i think about how stupid this sounds in hindsight but i went to what i consider my first hardcore show when i was in eighth grade but my friends went when they were in sixth grade so i felt <laughs> like it was what show did they go to in sixth grade <laughs> they we were lucky like they had someone had older brothers and we had like a really tiny bar in our town that would do sunday all ages matinees Okay. Um, and it was like the early 2000s. So like, this was like victory records kind of stuff, like not like, you know, uh, but that, I don't know, that's what it was for us. And that's, I mean, props, it, that's bold for a sixth grader. 
I mean, it, yeah, I, it's crazy. I, <laughs> I was technically seventh in seventh grade when I went to my first show. Um, it was the Crumb Suckers at Sundance on Long Island. Um, but and that was like an all age Sundance was usually sixteen plus, I think. But Crumb Suckers played two shows. They played like a six o'clock all ages show, and then like a eight o'clock, you know, sixteen or eighteen plus show. But I remember that was the first time I'd ever seen the words all ages. And I thought, Ooh, I'm an all age. <laughs> I would like to go to this show. And, um, and I was lucky. I, I, uh, so this kid that was in my class, actually, I was a crumb suckers fan already. I was really into drawing on my books and I drew the crumb suckers, um, little character guy, you know, with the big horn mouth or whatever. I drew a version of him, on one of my textbooks and a kid in my homeroom sort of like walked over and was like, you like the crumb suckers. And I was like, are you fuck, you know who the fucking crumb suckers are? Holy shit. And he was like, my cousin plays guitar. And so that's how I found out about the show. And, and I met them and I had them sign my t-shirt. I was such a nerd. It was beautiful, <laughs> but I wore that t-shirt to school that Monday. I was so proud. <laughs> No, that's awesome. I mean, I I have like the utmost respect for people who found this stuff in the pre-internet era cuz like yeah, I mean, I feel like my introduction to this kind of music probably would have been in like 2001 or 2ish and like it was easier then. So like, you know, I'm It's not, you know, it's not a better or worse thing, right? It's just a different thing. And I, I I do feel like there was a sense of joy in discovery when you really had to dig, you know, and by dig, I mean, you had to leave your house and, <laughs> you know, find that record store that that had fanzines or that sold seven inches or, you know, go to that show that scares you, you know, when you get off the subway and you're like, fuck, I'm going to die, <laughs> or like, you know, like, I'm sure that there are versions of those things that exist now, but as somebody who falls into my fair share of, you know, Google rabbit holes, I feel like I've never really experienced joy in a Google rabbit hole. So I, I imagine the joy comes from somewhere else these days. I just don't know where. <laughs> well, I'd be curious to hear like, you know, what some of the younger hardcore bands that you interview uh, have to say about that kind of thing. But I, I will say like speaking for myself, I mean, finding, you know, stuff on media fire in the 2000s that you felt like no one had heard of but you that was i think our like millennial version kind of of yeah. like you know yeah well actually naps i will say napster was a great discovery engine that really was exciting for me i thought um i mean when you're talking about younger folks too um maybe i'm, I'm bringing up anxious again because they're on the mind i actually just um was watching a video of them a couple of nights ago. And then I followed Grady, their singer on Instagram the other night. And one of the reasons why, or not one of the reasons, but one of the things that I saw on his Instagram was that he was just this diehard record collector. And it was, and I was thinking like, okay, so this is sort of that, right? Like for me, it was like, oh, I just need to find a record store that's selling seven inches of bands that exist and seven inches that are out now. But for him, the joy is how can I find this fucking seven inch from 35 years ago 
on, you know, blue vinyl. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and there's a couple of posts on his Instagram where he like, he finds a first, I think it was like a first pressing Fugazi repeater for like 12 bucks somewhere. And he was just like, Oh my God, you know, he's so happy. So it was like that. Okay. There's the joy. Like he found it in record collecting. And, and so there is a version of it, I guess. For sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely record collecting. Like I, I mean, one of my favorite stories to tell is like, there was this record vendor guy at my college and he had like an actual eighties pressing of like a minor threat record. And this was like right before the vinyl boom. So I think I got it for like eight bucks. And now like you go on discogs, I could make some money from that if I wanted to, you know, I mean, (laughs) you know, what's fun. So Scott from Texas is the reason I don't know if Scott would say that he was a record collector, like, you know, the way record collectors say they are like very like identity driven record collectors, but he liked records and he bought records and, and, and whatnot, but he was the fucking master of finding the craziest shit for nothing. Like we would go to a thrift store and he'd be like, yeah, dag nasty. Can I say test pressing for $2? <laughs> no lie. That happened. <laughs> but he would do it over and over again. And I'm like, what is your fucking juju? Like, what is this? <laughs> um, I never had that. I was, I, I liked buying records, obviously, when I first got into the scene and like whatnot. And then I sold my records uh, for not a lot of money in like 1991, I went to Venus records on St. Mark's place and I just sold them mostly because I was like, I don't know. Like if, if you sort of know me, you know, even today, I'm not really a person who collects things. Like I, sort of maybe have one of everything I've ever done like myself that I've been involved in, but I'm not that nostalgic for artifacts like items and things like that. Um, I maybe if I ever regret getting rid of stuff, occasionally I I regret getting rid of t-shirts. Um, but you know, there was the t-shirts game is like a stock market and I sold when the market was really good. <laughs> so it made up for selling my records for nothing. <laughs> what's uh, what's one t-shirt that you wish you didn't get rid of? Oh, man. I had them all. Um, <laughs> you know, okay, so this is, a, this is sort of, I missed this one for a um, sentimental reason. Uh, it was a red Project X schism t-shirt and um the reason that it's sentimental is because in 1993 or 94 maybe yeah something like that i um i was i was working a job for this company called SonicNet. um SonicNet was run by this guy tim nye who also owned an art space called thread waxing space um, that put on shows back in the nineties sometimes for like indie rock type shows, but they also did performance art. And so he was bringing in Timothy Leary um, to do some type of performance. And I was working as a publicist for SonicNet at this time. And he asked me to drum up some press or drum up some support or whatever. And I was like, okay. Um, so 
most people, oh, and so the reason this wasn't just for the performance, but this was, this was the news hook. And this tells you what, what time it was. Um, the news hook was that Timothy Leary would be doing a web chat. (laughs) Wow. So he would be answering questions live on the internet. And, (laughs) and so SonicNet at the time was sort of like a bulletin board basically because the modern internet didn't exist yet. And, uh, somehow I got ABC news to bite and to, they, they came to do the story. Uh, and I was like, okay, great. So we scheduled this web chat and then Timothy Leary comes to the office and I spend the morning with Timothy Leary and it was, that's a whole other story. But, uh, (laughs) then we go to film the web chat for the ABC special and Timothy Leary says to me, um, my hands aren't really that great for typing anymore. Would you be the typer? And I was like, sure, you could just dictate whatever you want me to type and I'll type it. He's like, okay, great. And so it eventually wound up on TV and I am sitting there and all you see of me is the back of a t-shirt that says NYC straight edge with Timothy Leary dictating. (laughs) And I just sort of was like, that's the most ironic, beautiful thing. And, uh, and so there's a part of me that misses that (laughs) t-shirt. That is like the best reason to miss a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah. Otherwise it's like the other t-shirts are just like, they looked cool. It was fine. Mm -hmm. But that one, that one meant a little something more. That's funny. That reminds me though of something I wanted to kind of pick your brain on. And it's such a minor thing. But um, you wrote in one of the antimatter, like the newer ones, you were like, I think it was kind of a joke, but you were like, well, we've triumphantly outlasted the hippies by decades. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I was just like, I don't know. I mean, are any hardcore bands doing fish numbers? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it is funny because there is a huge hardcore deadhead kind of thing happening right now. Yes, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think that the thing about the hippies, uh, and when I I say hippies, I'm really referring to the the boomers and sort of like that generation where it feels very like, wow, you guys were so idealistic. And then that just ended, didn't it? (laughs) Um. I do feel like for whatever reason, hardcore kids, even if they've dropped out, have a tendency to to sort of stay hardcore in different ways. Um, and even just like you take someone like me, like not that I've dropped out, but like I'm not straight edge anymore, right? I was straight edge between 1987 and 2005 or 2006. I had a good run, right? But that said, I also don't really do anything. I've still never done drugs. I've never smoked pot. Um, I drink a little bit occasionally, but I've never been drunk. <laughs> I sort of just, you know, I get, I, I drink a couple of glasses of wine. I'm like, oh, cute. That feels nice. And I stop. And I think like <laughs> that still comes from this weird straight edge idea that got planted to my head when I was very young (laughs) of just like not wanting to be out of control and not wanting to feel, um, you know, intoxicated, I guess. And so that's a weird random thing, but I think a lot of people, even if they leave hardcore, they carry those things with them because hardcore 
for most of us, honestly, this trope of hardcore saved my life carries a little bit of weight. I truly like, there are a lot of things that saved my life. There are a lot of ways my life could have gone wrong. But hardcore was the first discernible thing that made me feel like I belonged on the planet. And I think that's why I've always been very loyal to it because, you know, over the years, obviously, I've played different styles of music, I've done different styles of music, I've done a variety of different things outside of the hardcore scene, but I know where I come from and I know that that thing is valuable and deserves to exist for the next generations. And it's like, and I really do believe that it is for sure, I can't think of anything else before hardcore that I can say saved my life. So it is the first thing of many to save my life. But the fact that it did allowed me to experience those other things. And, you know, I'm grateful. I'm always going to be grateful. I'm always, and I said this to Toby, actually, when uh, Toby Morris, we did uh, an interview and I just was saying to him, like, I, in my life, I've gone through a lot of, a lot of hardships and I've been in a lot of places partially because of, you know, what we were talking about earlier, this, this, thing about like you give certain years to your life that you can't or to hardcore that you can't get back and then you're in the quote unquote real world and nobody gives a shit and you're sort of like whoa I'm fucked right now what am I going to do and the people who have always come for me the people who have always lifted me up and helped me and got me to the next place that I needed to be were hardcore kids I have people from lots of different parts of my life um you know lots of different i've you know a variety of different um social groups even but the people who were always truly there for me were hardcore kids and i think that says something about who we are um as a people and as a community that you know and it, and the fact is that people from the scene that i am friends with when they need something and they come to me i drop everything so i think you know this is real and if people understand that then i think hardcore is going to have a future at least as long as it's past. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that, you know, it really comes back to what you said about like, it's really more of like a community than a style of music. For sure. I mean, I don't know, like, you know, I'm sure everybody listens to their favorite hardcore, you know, classic hardcore bands and stuff, but nobody's listening to music that sounds like minor threat 24 hours a day. I don't believe it. <laughs> well there's a i think it was do you remember when you did this like emo panel at cmj yeah um i think this is when you said it but and this kind of relates to the sellout stuff too but i feel like you had this quote where you were like people would accuse bands of like selling out trying to reach new audience like whatever like sacrificing who they really were and you were like but the reality is just they got three years older and liked fleetwood mac now <laughs> it's true and so many people do <laughs> still everybody has their fleetwood mac moment the new generation's not there yet you'll get there <laughs> oh i love fleetwood mac <laughs> but it's you know and it's but that's the point being is that it's fine right like there was a period of time where i like obviously in the 80s god there was so much good music going on besides hardcore are you telling me that like I wasn't allowed to be into The Cure and I wasn't allowed to be into New Order and I wasn't allowed to be into The Smiths and all these bands that I was into back then? Like I loved those bands and it was no secret. If I was hiding them though, it was only because I thought people would think I was gay, which I wasn't ready to cop to yet. 
<laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, all the bands you just named, like, that's that mixed with hardcore is like how we probably got quicksand and probably Texas is the reason. And for sure. Like, yeah, for sure. I mean, people forget it because it's been so far removed. But like when quicksand first started, everybody was like, they sound like Jane's addiction. And they kind of did. <laughs> and that's okay. They liked Jane's addiction. So did I. <laughs> I went to see Jane's addiction and the happy Mondays at Madison square garden in like 1989. I think it was nothing shocking. Um, and there were a lot of hardcore kids there. I can promise you that. There were a lot of hardcore kids when I saw Queensryche and Metallica. I remember like, oh, there's Leeway. There's, <laughs> it's like, you know, this is, this is the point, right? Like hardcore to me, and again, like these are all subjective. Everybody has their own experience and their own version of what hardcore is to them. But hardcore to me implies a willingness to evolve, to get better, to change, to do it. Like, I don't see that there's anything noble in being the same exact person your entire life, especially if we're talking about being the same exact person since you were a teenager. There's nothing noble about that. <laughs> Evolve, change, get better, do more, contribute, use your experience, use your wisdom, add to the community, Nobody needs a 16-year-old, 40-year-old. Yeah, I mean, I think I couldn't agree more. And it's, it, you know, it disappoints me when I see people like lash out against the opposite of being a 16-year-old, 40-year-old. Um, like I was just reading the, uh, the new bio for Angel Dust. Um, and Justice was talking about like, when he first did Angel Dust instead of Trapped Under Ice, like, he was like, I lost friends. He was like, there were people who wow. were like, why are you making this like uplifting, happy, poppy music? Like he was like, they wanted me to be like evil, dark guy. And I wasn't. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, okay. So this is, this is sort of another thing, right? That's real. Mm. Who are you? Right. <laughs> it was like, should Siv have been singing in fucking, you know, trapped under ice or does he make more sense than Gorilla Biscuits? He's not, you know, he's a happy-go-lucky person. Like, this is like, you know, that worked, right? That's who he was. So being true to that and making music that's true to who you are, we should be able to accept a wide variety of people, right? And I get that people say, well, hardcore is angry. And yeah, like, there were a lot of angry songs, you know, when hardcore started, but then there was also like, you know, there was, I don't know if you've ever heard like the Someone Got Their Head Kicked In compilation. It's one of my favorite records. It's, it's uh, I actually learned guitar, how to play guitar to that compilation. And so there were tracks on that compilation that were super fast and hard and fucking angry, like Battalion of Saints. And then there was like, I remember there's this uh, song by the Joneses called Pillbox. And it was like this very proto pop punk kind of like happy, like taking you out of my pillbox. And it was such a fucking cool song. And I loved it. There wasn't an angry bone in its body. But to me, it was real. And it still came from this place. Um, and and so what what he's saying is like, essentially, like, don't hate me for being me. 
<laughs> yeah. And that's that's the shit. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. I people used to say the same thing about antimatter, to be honest. Like antimatter wasn't universally accepted in the 90s, right? Obviously, it was accepted by a lot of people because I sold a lot of fanzines, right? Like to sell 5,000 copies of a fanzine in 1994 was unheard of. I don't know how I did that. But people obviously wanted what I was giving and I was happy to give it. But that wasn't universal. Anytime you have any type of success, you have detractors. It's just the reality. I've, you know, it's the same as the bands I've been in. And so there were people who criticized antimatter for being soft. You know, nobody wants to hear about your feelings and shit like that. But I was like, look, if that's true, no one would buy my fanzine. <laughs> but 5,000 people buy my fanzine and I could probably sell more. So you're wrong. Let us be us. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Let us be us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so while I have you, in addition to all this hardcore talk, I would love to ask you a couple emo questions, if that's okay. okay. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing, like, I'm just curious your perspective, because this is one of those things where, like, all I know is what I can, like, read on the internet, but you lived it, so I want to know your perspective on this. Um, Sunny Day Real Estate, why were they emo? Like, I'm not saying I don't think they were. I think they were. But they were from, like, the epicenter of grunge. They were on Sub Pop. They never wanted to be emo. They didn't really seem to associate with the bands who... There's an easy answer to it. Go for it. They're hardcore kids. (laughs) That's it. I mean, Dan, when, when they came out, um, so Dan had been playing in a straight edge band called resolution, which was the successor of a very famous straight edge band in Seattle called brotherhood. Um, so the singer for resolution is rest in peace. Um, he was basically like the guy in Seattle straight edge hardcore and Dan was a part of that world. And then Nate had played in Christ on a crutch. And so you've got ex members of already. So we were like, okay, cool. You're in. (laughs) We don't care what you sound like. You're hardcore. Welcome to the club. (laughs) And because of that, it then all of us who were in hardcore bands who started other bands, we just sort of got called emo. So that's pretty much that. (laughs) That makes sense. I actually really didn't know about their like straight edge past. Um, it's- there's a there's a photo if you scroll through my Instagram really far, I've, I years ago I posted a photo of Inside Out uh, where Zach is screaming and Dan from Sunny Day is like ah like right next to him screaming <laughs> at a show in Seattle. It was like he was a hardcore kid. There you go. Um, so I also wanted to ask you on the emo note, um, coming from like being in Texas, the reason when all the bands like all all the bands that would have been emo in the 90s were just like other than jimmy Eat world getting big later on like nobody was like really going to cross over no one did on that level how did you react when it became like mainstream music in the 2000s honestly i was probably a little bit suspicious <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know that i don't even know that that's the right word but um because, you know, some of these bands were bands that I knew, 
like from hardcore world, right? Um, but the thing is this. In the 90s, the bands that we're talking about that were generating interest from major labels, Texas is the Reason, Mineral, even Jimmy Eat World at that point, um, none of us were really writing radio songs, right? So like Jimmy Eat World had a hit when they finally wrote a song that was three minutes long and had a chorus, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But before that, they were like, no, this song should really be 13 minutes long with a glockenspiel, (laughs) right? (laughs) And, And Texas was the same way. You know, if anything, my reaction to the bidding war was to write songs that were even more obtuse. So like, if you listen to the two songs that we finally did record that showed up on the anthology, which were the last two songs that we wrote as a band before we broke up, you've got Every Little Girl's Dream, which is six and a half minutes long and very not friendly for radio. And then you have uh, When Rock and Roll Was Just a Baby, which was my experiment of writing a three and a half minute song that sounds like a pop song, but isn't because there's no chorus. <laughs> and, and, and the reason why I wrote those songs is because um, I wanted to give them to Gary Gersh, who was the president of Capitol. Um, and I just wanted him to hear them and tell me what he thought. And according to him, they were the best songs we ever had. And I was like, okay, I don't know what to tell you. If you want to waste your money, you can waste your money, but we're not going to be on the radio. The point being (laughs) is that none of these bands from our era, I mean, you could argue maybe the promise ring, but they were already sort of like, they were evolving almost faster than they could evolve. Like every record was so drastically different than the one before it. Um, Their evolution was just manic. So by the time the 2000s rolled around, you actually had song bands that were more that were hardcore kids, but also sort of like maybe from the generation that came up on Green Day and Offspring and like sort of Smashing Pumpkins even, or like, you know, the 90s basically. And so if you listened to those bands and those were the bands you cut your teeth on, then writing a three minute song with a chorus, sure, you can do that. Like that that makes sense. So in the end, I wasn't really that blown away because I thought, well, they're ultimately writing pop songs and that's cool. They're good songs. Like I'm still going to say that fall out boy, sugar, we're going down is one of the best songs I've ever heard. I love that song. <laughs> it is the catchiest, coolest chorus. I, it, I didn't understand a word that he was saying for years, but <laughs> I, I loved it. <laughs> um, and so, but to me, you know, it's pop music and that's why it popped. Right. So, it's just a stylistic thing. I mean, people just, they were raised on different things. So they sort of absorb things differently and they were able to translate the things about our bands that they loved into a new way of being, which were the, basically they were doing all the things that our bands refused to do because we were so fucking concerned with selling out <laughs> and good for them because they made some good music doing it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so you now play in Thursday. Um, do you remember when you first heard them or encountered them? Um, 
Oh my God. Have I told this story in public? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, I feel bad. I guess I should, I'll cop to it. Um, so the first time I heard Thursday, I was, I was playing a new end original in the early 2000s. And, um, and so what's funny about when we talk about the early 2000s is that new end, we so just didn't feel like a part of everything that was happening. We felt like a band out of time. And, um, maybe that was our stupid chip on our shoulders, but that's what it was. At any rate, we were on a skate video or a BMX video or something like that. They, and so revelation sent me copies when they got, or not revelation J tree sent me copies when they got copies. And one day I just, I put it in my TV, uh, on the, in the VCR DVD or whatever, and just had it on and I'm walking around just sort of like doing stuff around the house. And this song comes on and I had this visceral, like negative reaction that was so, I, it was so brutal. Like, I can't even tell you, like, I literally felt energy coming out of my chest. Like, oh my God, I got it. Like I had to find the remote control to fast forward this song. I did not want to hear this song and I fast forwarded through it. And then, you know, I get to the next thing and, and I, you know, watch the rest of the video and the video gets to the end. And I'm like, I have to know what that song was. Like, what was that? It created such a fucking negative reaction in my body. Like it was a physical reaction that I like literally was like frantically looking for the remote control to, to turn it off. <laughs> and it was cross out the eyes. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking like, fuck, that's Thursday. Like I'd never heard Thursday before. I was like, fuck, that's weird. Now, granted, I have no idea how much of the song I actually got through. All I knew was that through my television set, I hated the way it sounded and it created this really negative response. So in my brain, I didn't like Thursday. Fast forward to 20 years ago this October, I was living in San Francisco and my friend Steve, who runs Equal Vision Records, was on tour with Coheed and Cambria. And they were opening for Thrice and Thursday at the Warfield. And so I went to go visit Steve and I'm hanging out with Steve in the dressing rooms and Steve Padula from Thursday comes up to me and says, do you remember me? And I was like, no, (laughs) should I? And he was like, we used to be pen pals in the nineties. And I was like, oh, wait a second. And he's like, yeah, I'm from New Jersey. I sent you a, he sent me a video with embrace and rights of spring on it. And I remember I sent him a mixtape and, and probably some videos, but I sent him like seven inches and lots of things. And we, we would trade stuff back and forth. I was like, oh, I totally remember you. And, you know, cause we had eventually met. And so we started talking and then I was just like, wait, what are you doing here? And he was like, I play on Thursday. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit. I, you know, so immediately in my brain, I'm embarrassed. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I don't think I like Thursday, but, um, he introduces me to the rest of the band everyone's really fucking cool and really nice. And they're all, you know, fans of Texas. And it was like a nice thing and, and whatever. And then I actually watched them play. And this was during war all the time era. And they're like a different band. And it's just like, they're fucking firing on all cylinders. And it's just, it, they were amazing. And so I was like, wow. Okay. And then I went home and, uh, I remember that week, like finding cross out the eyes to listen to it again. 
and being like, what the fuck was it about that first time? Like, I get it now. <laughs> but that first time I heard it, I was like, I just don't, I don't know what it was that created that fucking negative reaction. Now it's honestly, it's like, definitely, it's one of my top three favorite songs to play, <laughs> which is totally weird. So that's like, yeah, that's my weird Thursday story. <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, I guess sometimes you end up loving the thing that you really hated at first. Well, it definitely, made me realize, well, maybe number one, that my TV probably had crappy speakers and maybe it sounded crappy on it. Um, but you know, number two, it's like, I do tend to give things more than one listen now. That's definitely the way I, you know, I can't remember the last time I've been viscerally, uh, scrambling for the eject button. Um, so it was a rare, but interesting moment for that to happen. <laughs> and especially sure. considering everything that's happened since. <laughs> yeah. I imagine the, the band knows this story. I'm sure, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I will say also like, it sort of reminds me of, uh, do, are you familiar with that band brothers keeper? Uh, it sounds familiar, but not really. So they were, uh, they were from Erie, Pennsylvania. They were a hardcore band in the nineties and their singer went on to be in this band called the AKAs later on. And then um, who like they toured with like international noise conspiracy and bands like that. Um, but he has a very, we'll just say very unique voice. He was criticized for it incessantly in the nineties. Um, people used to criticize brothers keeper specifically for his voice. Anyway, he's a very uh, well-established tattoo artist now. And I was hanging out with him in Philadelphia a few months ago. And we started talking about that. And, you know, he said something very self-deprecating about his voice. And I just said, look, here's the thing, Mike. You, I will say that you had an idiosyncratic voice. But you can't say that it was a bad voice. Because there were a shit ton of bad singers in the 90s. And we don't talk about them anymore. But Brothers Keeper, if you were there, we talk about it. We remember. And that means something different to me. That doesn't mean bad. That means memorable, right? And I think that that's sort of, you know, I look at that that Thursday story in the same way. It's like, maybe it wasn't that it was bad. It was just something that I hadn't really heard yet. And I was kind of like, okay, this is just new and it's making me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah and like not to go down this rabbit hole because i'll spend way too much time on it but like i am obsessed with this type of stuff and there's like scientific studies about like why our brains are like wired to like familiarity and dislike something unusual mm. um and yeah it's it's um yeah anyway um it's also interesting because i know a lot of people have said jeff has like a bad voice or at least did up till like a certain point but i don't know it's it's like I never had that with, with Thursday. Like I had that with like neutral milk hotel. Like I needed a minute to like, uh, get to get used to the way Jeff Mangum sings, but like cross out the eyes was the first Thursday song I ever heard. And I was floored, uh, but at a way different point in my life. So, but I, anyway. I look at even like, you know, captain jazz and the first time you heard captain jazz and it's just like, um, I didn't know what to do with that for a second, <laughs> but there was a point where it was just like, I don't know, man, this is just sort of undeniable because it's yes, I get it. His voice is weird, but he's singing his ass off right now about kitty cats. And I'm like ready to jump off the stage. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not always about 
um, technical, you know, I mean, I'm not a good technical guitar player in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people will tell me otherwise. They'll be like, no, you're a fucking amazing guitar player. And I'm like, "Mm, I can play things that I've written pretty well. Joining Thursday was really challenging for me because it, you know, like playing other people's songs and especially songs that are like these songs, these are not easy songs. So I really had to like go out of my way to almost like, you know, I wanted to do Tom right. If I'm filling in for Tom, I'm going to like, I wanted to make him proud. Right. (laughs) You know, and it was just, and Tom was, you know, he's very generous. He was just like, oh, come on. He's like, I ripped off so much from you anyway, that like, I'm sure it's going to feel familiar, (laughs) but it's like, no, I mean, everybody has their own distinct blueprint and, or, or not blueprint, fingerprint when you're playing. And now it's funny because I feel like I've really imbibed Tom's fingerprint in some ways. And it's like part, it's becoming kind of part of the way I play. <laughs> so we've, we've done this weird thing where Tom is like, oh, I, I, you know, took so much from you. And now I've sort of took stuff from Tom and I'm starting to feel like, um, me and Tom should maybe start a band together because that would be really weird <laughs> and interesting. <laughs> yeah. Something else I wanted to ask you, not to insinuate that you like make decisions to do smart business things or be at the right place at the right time or whatever. But one thing I've kind of always wondered is like Texas kind of reunited like right before like all those 90s emo bands came back and it was like such a thing. Was there ever a part of you that was like, shit, we were like two years early. If only we had waited and been part of like the whole thing. Or are you just. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, we, we always felt a little bit apart from everybody anyway. So that was fine. But I think for us, like the, the getting back together in, in 2012 and 2013, was mostly just acknowledging the fact that that was the first year that we all lived in the same city again since we broke up. And when we started that reunion, um, it was like, it was really like, I didn't necessarily want to do it because Revelation had asked us to do Rev 25 that year. And, uh, you know, for me, it's not that I, I don't want to be like this guy who's just like a curmudgeon or anything like that's not really what it's about, but like, I do think it's okay to let things end. And I'm, I was very happy with sort of the 2006 shows that we did at Irving Plaza. I felt like we don't need to, we don't need to kick the dog. It's cool. I'm good. Um, the only reason I sort of was like, okay, was that I said to the band, I will do rev 25, but then we have to do more. Like we have to do, like, I can't do it again where like, like in 2006, when we did it, we were very firm, two shows at Irving Plaza. That's it. And I was basically like, I feel like if we do rev 25 and just, just play one show at Irving Plaza that's like kicking people in the teeth now, (laughs) right? Like that's going to make a lot of people just mad. Like what the fuck? And I get that we're all older and we can't like go on a two month tour. So let's just be really strategic about where we play. It'll feel like we went on tour, but like actually we were just flying out and doing weekends and like, you know, we got, we did some stuff in the Midwest. We did East coast. We did a little in the South. We did Toronto. And then we did, 
think two weeks in Europe. And it felt good. And I felt like, honestly, when we ended it, um, those final moments in London, uh, I was like, this is perfect. Wouldn't change a thing. 10 out of 10, no notes. I actually felt like at that moment that we had ended at the exact perfect time. And I'm good. I'm like, you know, I'm proud of what we did. I love everything we did. I love that it still has an effect on people's lives. I love that new people are still discovering it. I love that we moved people that, you know, that our songs became their wedding songs and their fucking funeral songs and like all the, you know, there's that shit is wild to me and I'm so grateful for it every day. Um, but I definitely I'm good. <laughs> I don't need to relive it anymore. I'm, I'm all right. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I would love for you to relive it again, but you know, totally. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the fact that, you know, back in the day, again, this is the whole thing I was, we were talking about with hardcore futures. Like, I, you know, back in the day, I was like, no one is ever going to want to see me on stage when I'm fucking 40 something years old. And I feel like more people want to see me on stage now than they did back then. <laughs> I mean, couldn't have predicted that. Um, and again, I appreciate that. But I also understand that there's an element of uh, supply, demand and scarcity at play. And we've been pretty scarce for the last 10 years. <laughs> so I get that people are like, oh, I'd love to see that. And, you know, I'm sure it would be a great show, but uh, I'm good. <laughs> awesome. Well, I feel like I could literally ask you like 40 other things uh, if we had all day, but it's probably a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else you feel like you want to say or like shout out or promote or anything before? Um, I will say this. I think that I haven't really um, touched a lot on the subscription-based aspect of antimatter, but I do want to say, so number one is in the first month of its existence, the response that I've gotten has been really great. And I launched this with the idea, with a very hard, hardcore sort of idealism attached to it, that I could do this, that I could do this without a paywall and then I could do this without a paywall and there would be readers who saw the value in it enough that they would want to subscribe, uh, be paid subscribers, despite the fact that there's no paywall. It's a very idealistic thing to do. And so far, I will say that I have been so surprised and I'm so grateful that people are doing exactly that. Um, it's actually moving into a direction where I do think that there is a sustainable future for antimatter. Um, and I do eventually want to get to a place where I can create incentives um, for paid subscribers while also keeping at least the majority of the site free and accessible because I do think access is important. We talked about that before. I want people to have access to these conversations and these ideas, and I want people to... Um, you know, not have to worry about whether or not like they can afford it. Um, but I, in order for that to happen, the people who can afford it and do find it valuable, as long as they keep showing up and showing that support and, you know, supporting the work, 
then I can continue to do this for a long time. And honestly, I would love to continue doing this for a long time. I'm, I was very sad when Anti-Matter ended. It was a very important part of my life and a very important means of expression for me. And the new iteration of Antimatter has very much been proving to be the same for me. I, I am truly loving it. It's truly a labor of love, um, but it's a lot of labor. <laughs> and so I need I need that support when people can support me. So um, so yeah, so thank I just want to thank everyone who's you know, really showed up for it, both the free and the paid subscribers. And I'm going to continue to, to give you your money's worth or your no money's worth um, as best as I can and for as long as I can. So, you know, the people who have been uh, helping on a financial level, I just want to give an extra thanks to because it's really making this feel like um, that there's a, a viable future for antimatter. And, uh, and that's amazing to me. That's a gift. Awesome. Well, I am so glad that you're doing it. I think every, I've literally every piece I've read so far and it's all been awesome and I can't wait to read more. Um, and thank you so much, Norman, for coming on the show. It's been a blast chatting. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks again to Norman Brannan. Thanks for listening. Like Norman said, he's taken the hardcore idealist route and made antimatter totally free. But you can upgrade to a paid account. And, you know, if you can, I, I really suggest doing it because what Norman's doing is so awesome. And, you know, we have to help him keep it afloat. We really, having writing like this about hardcore in 2023, it's really necessary. And, you know, if you can help Norman out, I think it's worth it. Um, and if you can help BV out by telling friends about this podcast, giving us a good rating, those things only take a couple seconds and they do go a long way. So we really appreciate it. That being said, thanks again for listening. See you next time.